0: Hey, it's Arlene Bunn and filling in for Alex Pearson on On Point. Today on the podcast is shocking. One third of Ontario's long term care homes are experiencing COVID-19 outbreaks. How can this happen? I speak to the CEO of CanAge about it and what they think needs to be done to protect our elders. After all, why is it happening over and over again? Then another sense of anxiety. This time it's parents. They knew it was coming, but now they are faced with remote learning. Back on the table. No questions asked. And then disinformation expert Tim Caulfield joins me about how conspiracy theories on the Internet are radicalizing people, and resulting in real-world consequences, as we now learn after that manifesto surfaced from the Nashville bomber.
1: You're listening to On Point on Global News Radio. I was not aware of any MLAs being outside the country uh, until um, this week as well, when uh, all of this became an issue uh, and uh, inquiries were made.
0: That's how it sounded. Just days ago, that is the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, and today there is a bloodletting. Wow. Look at this story. It's, you know, what do we call it here? A revolution. It has been a long time since I think in Canada we've ever really seen anything like it. It started here in Ontario, Rod Phillips, and the posting, and the going away, and then we saw something in the beginning a little bit similar, didn't we? from Premier Doug Ford. We're going to talk about it tonight. For Alex Pearson, I'm Arlene Bynum. I'm hosting On Point here. And when I used the word revolution, as soon as I just said it, I thought it's it's really true. This is an honest-to-goodness political revolt. And I think it's important. We're going to battle it out at our panel and go in and out of it tonight on On Point. Because there's been so much frustration, hasn't there? What do we get from the politicians? We understand we've been sympathetic. They're under the gun. I still am sympathetic. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. But boy, it was a bit rich after the break when we learned that others were out there and they had planned like Rod Phillips. Then we saw Premier Doug Ford take a turn. Rob Phillips landing at the airport, hoping to recover from this mistake. And now we've got Jason Kenney doing this thing, bloodletting. And the message is very, very clear. And that's part of why this is resonating. Let's face it. You don't need a degree in this, that, and the other. You don't need to be paying attention. But the bottom line, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And now the ganders are losing their gigs. And boy, this is a huge moment for Jason Kenney and a huge moment for Canadian politics, in my opinion. Look at what we have here. We have Jason Kenney. We just played the clip before he spent the night being visited by the the fates and saw the past, the future, and the present. And then he starts punishing his people for this holiday travel abroad. And it's up to seven now. He's got his chief of staff resigning. He's got Tracy Allard, who is stepping down. And there are continued calls. I know it's kind of trending on Twitter for Jason Kenney. So it's going to be interesting on how this may be a template of what Canadians are thinking. The message, again, very simple. Don't tell us what to do and not do it yourself. And a couple of questions here, both still for Premier Doug Ford. When did he know and what did he do about it? Did he know because it got a little fuzzy, didn't it? At first it looked like, no, he didn't know. And then we heard the tape of the waves going and everything. And we're like, come on, Jason Kenney. Same deal. He said he didn't. he wasn't taking any action because he wasn't clear enough. What did he know? And what did he do about it? And the questions are still going to continue. Very, very interesting that uh, Jason Kenney, well, revealing is a better word. Revealing is a better word. He put it out in a, in a statement. He has not stood in front of the people of Alberta. But this story, flying around, being analyzed, and lots of opinion on this, on what it means. Because it could be a sign of the times. The people, the people who vote. They will not have it. Here's another thing I want to say, and I'm going to throw this at our political panel later on tonight on On Point. To me, it cheers me up a little bit here, because you wonder, we talk always about polarization. We see, you know, the liberals do this, the conservatives do this. Hey, and SNC-Lavalin was not over for a lot of us. There was a lot of questions we never got to know the answers to who knew what and when and what really happened with the prime minister and Josie Wil- Wil- Jody Wilson-Raybould. Well, here we have a similar situation, but it's very clear. The spin doesn't work. The explanations don't work. The pushing it off, the whole thing, it doesn't work. This was raw anger. I have rarely seen people react so quickly on something. And from So many different points of political view. Jason Kenney was being shot at from his own. You read like Rick Bell, who is known as a bombastic, very conservative columnist in Calgary. He ripped him, you know what, the first time. And he wasn't finished. Did another one today. (laughs) It was just as bad. Red, hot, white anger. And then... We have the virus. And the cases continue. We have a lot of questions here in the city of Toronto. And we will talk about this. We've been already warned. We're learned. We have, you know, been really conditioned. We know when they say more things could be happening, that it's the psychological pitch, isn't it? It's the psychological pitch that you bet things are going to be happening. And today, the city of Toronto announced again what I thought was a move forward, but why did it take so long? We're finally going to find out the places in, in the workplaces that are having outbreaks. I want to know. I'm sure you want to know. Because every day I say to myself, okay, what is the new information and how do I work that information into keeping things safe? What do I do and what I don't do? And there has been a great hue and cry that we need more data. Why can't we get the data? Why don't we know what workplaces? Why not? And now we're going to find out. I want to know if if something's happened. We hear about it in the meatpacking industry, and we hear about it in long-term care homes. We're going to talk about that tonight. We are. But here's how it sounded. Here's John Tory, who also, I mean, these two stories about what is happening in Toronto, also connected to the bloodletting that's happening in Alberta, and Rod Phillips. We remember the mayor giving Rod Phillips, you know, and I respect him in one. He just said, look, he's a friend. On the other hand, when we get back to the old adage, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You get into politics. What do you do? Should that matter? But here is the mayor on the announcement. We're about to find out more about the outbreaks.
1: Workplace outbreaks aren't good for anyone. They're not good for workers, of course. They're not good for their families. They're not good for our community. And they're not good for our collective fight against the spread of COVID-19. This is also why public health will now be publicly reporting these outbreaks. I believe this kind of transparency and public accountability will help to encourage employers to do everything they can to protect their workers, and it will help give everyone a better indication of where the COVID-19 virus is spreading in our community.
0: Makes a lot of sense, but why do we have to wait so long? Come on. I got to say, too, and we all have to keep it in mind, this revolt as we watch Jason Kenney do a big step around. We saw Premier Doug Ford. This is about how you and I feel. This is about how we respond to things. And we're going to talk about the long-term care homes again tonight. Why are those cases still on there? And if we can respond that way to politicians who don't do what they ask us to do, maybe we can rise up and they can start responding to long-term care homes in that way as well. Today, we've got a lot to talk about, and we'll get to it in the remainder of the show. And one of the big headlines is, of course, what's going on in our long-term care homes. You know, we're watching the virus. We're worried about a variant. We're looking, you know, what kind of new restrictions are going to be coming to Toronto, what else they can do. And we're seeing shutdowns, lockdowns, and we're also seeing politicians take responsibility finally for taking off over the holidays. Well, what responsibility should be doled out for keeping our long term care homes? Just a frightening, staggering amount of cases are still happening in those homes. One third of long-term care homes in this province are experienced COVID-19 outbreaks. Now, we know City of Toronto said they're going to talk a little bit more about workplace outbreaks. Well, here we've watched one just roll under our nose, and there's been talks of iron walls, all of this, and it doesn't seem to help. Why can't we? What needs to be done? Joining us is Laura Tamlin-Watt, CEO of CanAge. Laura, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All right, Laura, I mean, it's growing into a crescendo, the calls for what can be done within our long-term care homes. We were shocked. We were horrified. Then there was all these plans of funding and this and that, and we kind of believed them. And now here we are seeing this movie again. What are your thoughts?
2: So there were clearly lessons learned in the first wave, but what we didn't see was action taken. And we saw other provinces do much better than Ontario because they did take action. Just as an example, the staffing crisis has been long known, but Quebec hired 10,000 well-paid, essentially personal support workers, Mm -hmm. and it had them ready and in place in September. Ontario didn't make those types of steps, and right now our staffing is almost exhausted. So we do know what can be done. This government just
0: hasn't done it. No. And why do people do things? Look at what's happened with the politicians. There was outrage. There was pressure. Now, you know, we have a new minister of finance. We have a premier vowing that, you know, what's good for the goose is finally good for the elected gander. We're watching that in Alberta. What needs to happen here? Are these a forgotten people, the elderly?
2: The common theme here is really ageism. And I mean, Mm -hmm, I can't imagine mm -hmm. any other group of people that you Mm -hmm. would have an actual humanitarian crisis with a loss of life that is the worst in the developed world and not have action taken. And yet time and time again... We wring our hands and we say our heart is breaking, Mm -hmm. but we don't open up the pocketbook and put into place the evidence-based changes that people agree that we need to make. And the only reason in the end that we don't do it is because they have not prioritized it.
0: No, and governments prioritize things that they need to do. That's what they do. They want to stay alive like an organism. So does this fall on all of this? Do we really care? There was a quote from someone saying maybe just people don't care enough. And it's heartbreaking. And, you know, we're seeing it in the extension here as we look at people's lives in these long-term care homes. But why are they there? We've had to, I've been doing it, asking a lot of questions. Is there an ageism here in our society and is it getting worse?
2: The World Health Organization in 2017 did a a study that found that ageism was the most prevalent form of discrimination in the world. And it's not that we're short of other forms of discrimination. So it tells you how Mm -hmm. prevalent it is. And certainly we're seeing ageism in action. We're hearing people say that lives that are lost in long-term care. Again, in Ontario, as you said, a third of homes are in outbreak right now are kind of acceptable losses. You got it. These are our parents. These are our friends, our family members. These are real people, but there's a sense of other. The good news is this. We do know what we can do to fix it. We actually have the recipe to solve the problem. And it is through trying to put pressure on government to prioritize it that we can take steps because... I do believe that people want to make it better. But it's not just individuals We have to make government make the changes necessary.
0: We do. But, you know, is there not an emotion attached with this? Again, I go back to, you know, finally, the elected who went on vacation. There is some kind of ramification of that. But there had to be outrage. Is there enough outrage out there? Uh, no, I, I no. think it's really become a
2: situation where people have come to accept that you know older people can be put up behind walls, have their civil rights taken away from them. There's no legal way that you can actually lock people up in long-term care and restrict them from going outside or having visitors. That was actually an illegal infringement on their rights, but we accepted it somehow. And we've seen the hugely problematic, and in fact, devastating effect that that's had, not just on residents, but also on family and friends. And yet we know that if we prioritized vaccination in long-term care both for the COVID vaccine, but also things like flu and shingles and pneumonia, we could keep people safer. If we had mandatory testing, rapid testing at the door for everyone that works, visits, and lives in long-term care, we could be saving lives. But this government refused even to prioritize personal protective equipment for six weeks because they were hoarding it in acute care. And yet everyone was saying acute care isn't the concern the vulnerable older people who live in this enclosed environment, it's going to run rampage through it. And it is doing it, and it is doing
0: it again. They are, and it is perhaps up to the voters to say they will vote with this emotion. And we've, been, we've seen this movie before, even even before COVID hit. You know, as we looked at Elizabeth Wetmauer, who was, you know, killing people. Let's just say it. And there were so many questions that are very similar. Are people fatigued? Who's working in these homes? And here we have something else.
2: The, the recipe for fixing long-term care is extremely well documented. You know, we've had more than 20 types of reports and commissions, things like the Wet Law for Inquiry and others, that have come up with really substantive recommendations. My organization, CanAge, has put out 40 key issues with 135 very specific policy recommendations that are fairly easy to implement. It really is fundamentally, there is money and priority for things that society cares about. And it has been hard to understand and reconcile the words of our premiers by saying they're going to prioritize seniors, but we do not see the testing, the vaccines, the PPE or the investment in actually doing the things that we know would make it better.
0: And what about the opinion people or the who people who are analyzing this? You brought it up and it's so true. People are saying, well, you know, these people have so many issues and they will die anyway. And I'm I'm thinking, you know, is that what a. What a detective does when there's a murder, do they shut it down and say, well, this person would die anywhere. That's atrocious. Nobody ever would. And now we have this. Do we have to get our head around what people are actually saying here?
2: It's really horrific. It's ageism and action. And when you hear reports that I think have really scarred the psyche of Canadians, like the military report has done, and people say, are you shocked? And we say, no, we're not shocked. We're not surprised. We're horrified, but we're not shocked or surprised because some of these issues were longstanding. But right now, I mean, I was talking to a woman just yesterday who said that she was visiting a long-term care. She barely got in to see her mother before her mother passed away, had 10 minutes, and as she was exiting, older people were lining the hallways calling out for water because the staff, which have been running off their feet, incredibly short staff, just didn't even have enough time to hydrate people. What kind of society do we live in mm-hmm. where this is not just an understood problem, not just a problem that our military has identified as horrific, but is something that we don't prioritize and change when we know the answers. It really is a shame on our own selves.
0: Laura Tamlin-Watt, CEO of CanAge. Laura, thank you so much for keeping the fire going. Thank you kindly. Thank you. Welcome back. For Alex Pearson, I'm Arlene And One of the, the biggest things this week, and as we've been discussing, it's really a week of turmoil as we watch all these things that are happening, the political, the virus cases going up. What about the variant? All the things that are flying around. Parents thrown into this new situation Online learning, whether they want to or not, mandated. They knew it was coming with the lockdown and the new restrictions, but here they are. It's hard enough to get back into the swing of things, isn't it, when you've been off for a little bit. Never mind, now all of a sudden you are responsible for your child's learning or your children. If you got a bunch of them, well, then you are roving around the home and doing your own work. Uh, There was a wonderful piece in the Globe and Mail today that I thought gave a lot of advice, not just for parents, just for everybody trying to structure their day. And it was a collection of strategy and advice from parents who are doing this, who are thrown into this situation, and then they kind of pick the best. We are joined now by Dave McGinn, who is a reporter with the Globe and Mail, who was part of the team putting this together. Hi, Dave. Thank you for being here. Happy New Year and all that.
3: Happy New Year. Thank you for having me.
0: This is it, isn't it? I mean, this is what everybody with kids is talking about. And it's kind of a whole a situation where a whole bunch of things have come together. They knew that this was going to happen before the lockdown on Boxing Day. this is a, a moment for parents, and they've had a heck of a year.
3: It is, it is certainly a very stressful moment for, for parents. There's no doubt about it.
0: Now, you spent some time talking to parents and putting it all together in this wonderful piece on, on how to do it and what works and, and doesn't work. What was your strategy and your criteria as you started to put this together?
3: Well, I was wondering about all the parents, myself included, who are going to be thrown into remote learning this week and wanting to get some tips uh, from parents, because there are a lot of parents who have been doing this throughout the entire school year, and so they've climbed the learning curve. And so the idea was to talk to them and get their advice about, you know, difficulties you're likely to encounter and, and how to best avoid them. And they had some really wonderful
2: advice.
0: I think so. I mean, you know, I don't have kids. However, I'm looking at this knowing everyone who has children, how stressed they are and how this might help. How much did structure seem to come up with everybody, kind of keeping things as it was before? You know what?
3: It's, it Structure is the key to it all from what these parents uh-huh. said in a lot of ways it's not keeping as it was before you have to adapt it a lot of them talked about trying to maintain a schedule similar to the school day so one parent i spoke to had a great tip that she takes her kids for a walk in the morning before mm-hmm. school because she said you know just as as we would when we were going to school we would walk to school and so it's important to you know stretch your legs and get your body moving and then there's also the structure of having a proper workspace and maintaining a schedule of of recess breaks and lunch breaks and closing things down after school which I thought was was hugely helpful
0: also you know the connection with technology because that's part of the fearful you know everyone i know who have young children right now are saying you know i I don't know if I can technologically pull this off if my child asks me something and and I'm being thrown in to this technological teaching moment. But there's a management to that, isn't there? And part of it is not to let it get to you.
3: The possible uh, technological difficulties are a huge source of potential stress and worry for people. Um, you know from from not being able to log on, or coming back from a break and maybe not being able to get your wi-fi running one parent i spoke to had a very good tip she said you know get all of your devices ready and charged the night before that way you're not dealing with a low battery situation when school begins another parent had a great tip she sends her kids out on breaks for recess with a timer set to go off five minutes before School is set to resume again, and she said the reason she gives them that five-minute buffer is because sometimes you can have trouble logging on or other issues getting back into the classroom, and that saves you the stress of dealing with that right in that moment, which I thought was, was really helpful.
0: Exactly, you know, and and managing your your technology. I, I think one of the parents mentioned that your kid will probably know what to do. They're going to say, you know, I'm going to power down and get back on. There's a little bit of lag here. They, they they've got this in many ways.
2: Yeah,
3: one one parent I spoke to said his kid knows more about technology than he does. Uh, he had originally talked about, you know, here's how to put a conversation on mute, which is something kids will now need to learn how to do or here's how to navigate the page that you're on. Um, but I think, thankfully, most kids are pretty tech savvy, um, but it's probably worth, especially with the younger kids, it's probably worth going over some of those things so that they don't uh, lose their concentration or focus or, or are more stressed than they need to be right now.
0: And also, you know, we're talking about technology, but some of these parents said they also managed the screen time for their kids so that when there was a break, it wasn't a free-for-all. They had to get out and do something like little human beings.
3: Yes, the screen time is a big concern Um, you know I think most guidelines will say kids shouldn't have anywhere more between you know two hours a day for some age groups but in this new world at least for this week kids are on screens for school all day long and so a lot of parents stress the importance of break time is 100% no screen time you have to get outdoors you have to get some physical activity one mom has a great practice with her kids she has two little kids and she makes them run around the block on recess and to make it less of a chore she turns it into a game where she times them and they have to beat their time from yesterday because if you're if you're staring at a screen all day just the way you and I were mm-hmm. if kids kids do that they're they're going to become potentially lethargic, irritable so it's essential essential to get outside.
0: Also, the space, you know, there's uh, open spaces in a classroom, they have their desks, we all remember a connection to that little space we were given when we go to school. And now they're in a home and they've got siblings and they've got parents working for home. It was also fascinating to see that the parents that you talked to how important it was to have a designated space for the child so they know they are in school with a proper chair.
3: Yes, this was something that came up with a lot of parents, and it makes sense. One, one parent said, you know, just to have this psychological barrier to to help kids understand this is where you are when you're at school and when you leave this place, school ends, uh, was so important, and if you're lucky enough to have space for all your kids to have a separate room, that's, that's wonderful. One parent said, you know, if you're not that lucky and you want to help your kid avoid the distraction of whatever else is happening in the house, a headset is a good idea if you can afford it. Um, But having that space to be able to know that this is school and do your work and then leave it um, was, was a very key one for a lot of
0: parents. And as we mentioned, you know, the parents are home too. I've been talking to parents too, have been listening to things that they're, Children are being taught, and they disagree with it, and they're chiming in. But I guess uh, in in your piece, uh, the advice was, "You're not at school; it's future. You children. are
3: not at school. That was what one father <laughs> told me, which I understand because we don't see our kids at school. We don't know what happens in the classroom. But now we're given a peek behind that curtain, and some parents may want to chime in. Or comment or talk to teachers, and it's really not your place now, of course, if there is a big issue that you have, feel free to communicate with your teachers. Obviously, as what your parents told me, but you have to resist any any instincts you might have to jump in and interfere with the school day.
0: Let me ask you, where are we? Here we are. You know, you would be doing stories on other aspects of education. Here you are talking about parents jumping in. What a moment. What's going to hang around from this, do you think?
3: You know, fingers crossed we all get back to school soon for those of us who want our kids to be Mm -hmm. in school. But I hope we all learn a bit about this, of, of giving kids... More autonomy. One thing I thought was very interesting in regards to not interfering with your kid's school day is, you know, a lot of times kids will come to parents and say, Mom, I don't understand this or Dad, can you help me with that? And that's not their job. Uh, They wouldn't be doing that in school. And so a lot of parents have said it's actually taught their kids to to advocate for themselves and communicate with their teachers better, which is one thing that I hope comes from
2: this.
0: You know, the longer this goes on and parents get involved in this, is it going to change the dynamics? I mean, you know, you look at what online learning was and how political it was before. Now it's mandated. It's everything's topsy-turvy.
3: Everything is topsy-turvy. I hope, I think from the parents I've talked to, a lot of them are, most of them are very sympathetic to what, teachers have to do in this new reality. A lot of them didn't sign up for online learning, and there's going to be some headaches, and it's going to be a learning curve. Um, But I think there is still that sense that, you know, this is something that we're all in together, and we have to make it through as best we can.
0: You got it. Great piece in the Globe and Mail. Dave McGinn, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Good luck out there. Thanks
3: for having me. (laughs) You too. Bye-bye.
0: Dave McKinn is a reporter for The Globe and Mail. You can go to theglobeandmail.com and read it. it is good. I mean, I don't have kids in school here, but I found it fascinating because I, a lot of the things that are in there, it's what I'm doing. I'm putting structure that I, you know, at the time I used to get out of my car and I used to park far away and you walk as part of your routine. Well, now I make sure at that time I go out. And pound the pavement and the ravines and the parks and everything. So I keep it in my head, and I keep going in and out, side, and getting outside and doing that walking and walking like I'm going somewhere, as if it's a job that I have to do and I have to report and I have to have done a certain amount of distance. So here we are, and if I found some good tips in there. I think parents are just thrown into it because we all know this is a, a really big week, it's stressful for all of us, never mind if you've got a few kids in school. Welcome back for Alex Pearson. I'm Arlene Biden Misinformation, disinformation, we see it everywhere when it comes to the virus, the vaccine politics in the United States. And over the holiday season, we saw it after the bombing in Nashville. At least we wondered. And now we have new information that this Nashville bomber sent what appears to be a manifesto with a lot of the same conspiracy theories. And it makes us wonder just when this is all going to stop. Joining us is Tim Caulfield, professor of health law and science policy. Welcome, Tim. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: You know, we were kind of bracing ourselves, I don't know about you, when I heard about the story about the Nashville bomber and mailing these materials, and it, it made me think of all the other times that these things have happened. Is the person into conspiracies? Does he believe strange things? And I was jolted that that's the way we used to think about these conspiracies. And what do you know? We've got new information that what appears to be a manifesto Mailed to some of his acquaintances. You've been looking at all this, Tim. What do you think of this story?
1: It is it is remarkable, and, and you're exactly right. This really is you know, the era of of misinformation, and unfortunately, we're seeing examples of that every single day. You know, with with the vaccine, um, as you noted earlier, with with uh, politics in the United States. Uh, and, and what I find really troubling and what and what I think they, the tragedy in Nashville really highlights is things that were once viewed as extremely fringe, right, extremely fringe, are now uh, believed by a remarkable number of, of the population. We have surveys to back that up. For example, the 5G technology um, conspiracy theory, which, as you know, um, was has been connected with the bombing in Nashville, um, is believed by a remarkable number of individuals, in, in Canada included. Um, and so it really highlights how these fringe concepts have moved to the centre. Now look, the, the bombing in, in, in Nashville, this was a troubled individual, right? And, and who knows how how this would have played uh, out, regardless of, of the conspiracy theories that are circulating. But again, it really, I think, I, think, I mean, it really highlights how the toleration of misinformation, the toleration of pseudoscience, you know, the toleration of magical thinking can have real consequences and unfortunately as i said we're seeing examples of it every day.
0: And it's like you say he was a troubled individual, but aren't they all when we look back quite often into these things. But now we have a plethora of information that's out there that they can grab onto. Is there a theme here as we look at this? I mean, you know, we have these, he's, he's talking about aliens and, and talking about 9-11 and the moon landing. But, Tim, I mean, you're trying to fight this misinformation. Look at what's doing to the rolling out of a vaccine or how to fight this virus. And look at what's happening in the United States right now in the election.
1: So, so absolutely, there, there are themes that emerge, right? And 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 people that believe conspiracy theories are often um, they feel isolated. Uh, they often uh, are those individuals that are less likely to be trusting of, of you know conventional sources of information. Uh, there is some evidence. We have to be careful not to overgeneralize here. That there is mm-hmm. individuals that tend to lean right in their political ideology. They're more individualistic. Again, have to be careful not to, to overgeneralize because people across the, all demographics believe conspiracy theories, but there are definitely, there are definitely themes here. But, but one of the things that's happening now, I think more so than in the past, because look, people have always believed conspiracy theories, right? What's happening now more than in the past is these really fringe ideas are is starting to have an impact on a broader par- part of the population. So let me give you just one example. You know, that 28 percent of Americans believe that the Bill Gates conspiracy theory, the idea that he wants to put microchips in us through vaccines, and that's why he created the pandemic, which is completely ridiculous, completely fringe, not even scientifically plausible. Why would he do it? Right. All of those things. But you have that percentage of the population. At, we, at least open to the idea of this conspiracy theory we need to be careful not to overinterpret that right but but for example in in canada i think it's 11% of the population believes the 5g conspiracy theory in the pandemic so you know we're starting to get large portions of the population at least being open to these conspiracy theories and what that, what that does is it creates doubt it creates a, la- a breakdown in trust and that's when we see these real public health consequences, like with the vaccine, like with anti anti mask maskers. And, and I think, unfortunately, it, it empowers in, uh, uh, those in the fringe community to perhaps fringe communities t- to perhaps take more aggressive action.
0: What will help it? You know, i I I haven't heard of any way of fighting it right now. I mean, there are some pretty credible, formerly credible areas, like United States politics, that are pushing these things? Is it, is it just been monetized now? And is it getting more difficult to put the genie back in the bottle?
1: Uh, Well, I think it is getting more difficult, unfortunately. You know, know, the good news is, and I think we've talked about this in the past, that Mm
0: -hmm, there is evidence mm
1: -hmm. that that debunking and fighting misinformation can work, right? Now, that that doesn't mean that it's going to be a magical solution and if we just bombard the world with facts, it's going to solve the problem. But it is one thing that we need to do. Uh, Secondly, we need to do it right. So we need to take these really fringe conspiracy theories seriously, right? You know, I think in the past when people heard about lizard people and And the 5G technology, you know, we kind of laughed it off. But we need to take take it seriously. And and there's some evidence to back this up. If you get at it quickly and if that comes from a credible source, you can slow the spread, right, of, of misinformation. So we need to do, we need to act quickly. The other thing that we need to do is recognize that, it isn't just facts right you know it, it's going to require talking to speak people's values talking uh... to listening to them and, and getting a sense what their concerns are and, and recognizing that this does have to do with trust in communities and you know other things that are kind of driving this so uh... this is going to be a, an ongoing battle and and we've got to recognize that we have to use every tool at our disposal from good good science communication to public engagement and when necessary appropriate regulatory steps.
0: You know, has the virus helped or hurt this? Because, you know, you can believe in lizard people and those things, and it doesn't really affect your life. This affects people's lives. And I'm wondering, as it goes on, as the projections begin to become a, a reality, that people realize that it is true. Although we do have a lot of Areas where there was some misinformation, but is it helping or hurting this virus that's just...
1: Yeah, that's a great us. question. And, and, and I think the answer, unfortunately, you're going to hate this. <laughs> it's, it's, quite, mm. it's complex. It really yeah. is. It is complex, you know, in that uh, there's some evidence that suggests that people now have a greater, greater uh, trust in science which is different from having a greater trust in scientists and scientific institutions. So we have this complex uh, dynamic happening, I think, right now. Uh, people are getting frustrated um, with with how things are playing out. People are getting frustrated with how some public health authorities have handled, rightly or not, have handled uh, the pandemic. So we do have this really interesting interplay. But the lesson that we can take away from that, though, is that we need, you know, how, how important trust is right and we have to make sure that we have institutions that that do their best to maintain that trust and i and i think that that is going to be one of the big lessons coming out of out of the pandemic uh and, and also i think one of the big lessons is going to be a greater appreciation of the impact of misinformation you know this is an area i've worked on <laughs> in for decades and and we're starting to really see from the world health organization to you know the heads of governments to regional governments everyone now understands the harm the harm that misinformation can do
0: they do we get it we start talking about it and then at least there's a category in people's minds here on what to do but just very quickly as we get back to the nashville bomber it was a jolt from blast from the past wasn't it that's what we used to worry about this domestic terrorism is it back in style
1: Um, Yeah, I think it is, you know, it's interesting, I think, to see how, now I have to be careful, I'm not a terrorist uh, expert, Mm -hmm. but I I have been following this too, and it is interesting to see how people are categorizing this. You know, some people are, are, think it should be more clearly categorized as a a terrorist that has been responding to misinformation. Um, So I think it's very interesting to watch how this uh, this act is being framed in, in popular culture. Um, and I do think, you know, I do hope that we use, use this, this tragedy as an opportunity to do exactly what we're doing right now, to talk about how uh, misinformation um, can drive or at least become an important part um, of, these, of these kinds of tragedies.
0: Tim Caulfield, Professor of Health Law and Science Policy. Thank you, Tim. Good luck out there. You'll need it. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's the podcast for today. You can hear On Point, live on the radio, Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10 p.m. I'm Arlene Bynum for Alex Pearson.